thank you. Well, my name is Logan, and I am touched at your presence here on a snowy day. I think it's supposed to start getting worse during the course of this talk, so thank you for coming. Um, there are handouts if you didn't get one. I think there's still a few in a pile there that just sort of offer an outline of what I'll be covering um, this afternoon. Um, the title I've given this is Human Rights in the Latin American Tradition, and I'm framing this as a dialogue between John Locke and Bartolomé de las Casas. And this is part of my doctoral work, uh, is on this topic of rights and their emergence in the early modern period. Um, so in case this is not your first field, uh, political theory or ethics, you know, rights is very much a universal feature of political discourse in a lot of the world today. Uh, but it certainly has not always been that way. Um, in fact, you certainly had in the ancients of Plato and Aristotle and so forth, discussions about justice and goodness. Um, and you even had a concept that's often translated as natural right, which was really a sense of natural law that was discussed in that time period. Uh, but there was no notion of universal human rights like we have them today in the sense that every single human being um, not on account of their status in society. You know, Roman citizens had rights, but that was particular to that status. But actually the idea that every single human being, because of their humanity, comes with a certain kind of rights that dictate how they should be treated. That's a modern idea. And in the Anglo-American world, I found we tend to associate maybe one of the earliest expositors of this idea uh, to be John Locke, the British uh, political philosopher, whose dates here are on this sheet. And I have the dates there for you to see that um, others have been speaking about rights earlier than Locke. And it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment when human rights emerged in political Western discourse. But I was struck in the course of my research that much of Latin America doesn't associate the idea of rights with Locke at all. They don't really read a lot of Locke in their political theory classes. And instead, the, the figure from the early modern period who they tend to cite much more in this regard is this thinker named Bartolomé de las Casas. Uh, las Casas was a Dominican friar and later bishop. Um, he was known as an advocate for indigenous peoples. He wrote volumes, particularly chronicling history, feeling the need to set the story straight about how the Spanish were actually treating indigenous peoples, bringing those accounts before the eyes of the authorities in the church, as well as the crown in Spain, and, um, and essentially advocating for policy change uh, on account of what was actually happening on the ground. And in the course of Las Casas's writings, we find many things that maybe we, we tended to associate with Locke. We find even an idea of uh, consent of the governed. We see ideas of property um, emerging on the scene over a hundred years before Locke made them more famous, at least in the Anglo-American world. But despite the fact that we have these two regions of the world looking to two different early modern figures as they trace the trajectory of human rights, really no comparison at the level of comparing their works has been undertaken in the literature of human rights. And that's really the aim of my dissertation is to, is to make that comparison um, explicit. Um, where you do see more literature these days is in the relation to this Latin American tradition to human rights. And those of you who read articles uh, for this uh, seminar, I still think that's awesome. Thank you for doing that. You read an article by a guy named Paulo Carrosa, who's a legal scholar, who does argue that there is such a thing as a Latin American tradition of rights, um, and that it has made substantial contributions to how we understand human rights, even in 
Anglo-American spheres today. So Carosa and others uh, point, for instance, to the role of Latin Americans in the formation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That is this document that was produced early on in the history of the United Nations. It was in large part a reaction to the horrors of the Second World War, and it was formally declared and, and agreed to, assented to by, by most of the world's nations in 1948. Um, but what's often not mentioned, but now is coming to light in the studies of the transcripts of how that document got put together, is the key role played by Latin American delegates in the formation of that document. So even the motion of having a Declaration of Human Rights, that that would be a good thing for the United Nations to do. Actually, we've learned that that idea was put forward by a number of Latin American delegates and actually met with either coolness or hostility from Western nations, particularly France and England, and also the, the Soviet Union. <laughs> so it was really Latin America that, that pushed for this to be included. Um, and then it was also Latin Americans who played a role in the actual document being written. So uh, John Humphrey, who was a Canadian, was appointed as the head of the Division of Human Rights within the United Nations, but he drew on submissions from Panama and Chile in terms of the actual material that would make it into the UDHR. And those submissions from Panama and Chile, in fact, were drawing on a document from 10 years earlier that was put out by the Organization of American States, or at least the predecessor to the organization that we now refer to by that name. And and what's interesting about this Latin American contribution is not only that it's just putting human rights onto the public scene or the global geopolitical scene, but also that there is a particular Latin American flavor that comes out and is in fact seen in this document that is different from what we might call the Anglo-American stream of human rights. So in the tradition of Locke, you know, Anglo-American human rights often emphasizes concepts like individual liberty, property, as well as a sense of distrust of government. That certainly, as we'll see how Locke frames his theory of rights, it's very much rights that you have to protect yourself from a large monarchical government of the kind that someone like Thomas Hobbes <laughs> would advocate for. And yet in the Latin American tradition, we find different set of emphases. In some sense, they resonate with the French Revolution, but as we will see, they actually sort of go back into history, into the medieval era, and this tradition of natural law inherited from Aristotle and Aquinas. We have ideas like equality at the forefront, fraternity, this idea that rights need to be tempered with duties. There actually was a motion to include a list of duties as well as rights in the UDHR that was ultimately rejected because it smelled too, smelled too Catholic, <laughs> smelled too natural lawish to be, to be incorporated. And yet, even if you read the declaration, you see there's a section on family. You see there's a section on society. These are the kind of things that, at least in Canada and the U.S., that often don't get spoken of you know, in the sense of we're talking about rights. And as we speak about this, we need to speak about the role of the family. That's, in a way, a different flavor that, that Latin America brought to the table in the course of this document. And we also see here a more positive sense of government. Government is not necessarily what needs to be protected. We need to be protected from so much as government needs to be called on to, to care about the poor, to engage in, in um in seeing rights in a positive sense. In other words, not just things that need to be protected, but things that need to be provided. Um, rights to education, rights to, to basic welfare and so forth. And so um, a number of scholars like Carosa and also Marianne Glendon at Harvard have been talking about how this Latin American contribution actually is not happenstance, but really the product of centuries of reflections on human rights in Latin America. And Marianne Glendon, for instance, calls Latin America the forgotten crucible of the human rights idea. And I like that she uses the word crucible because if you've read any of Las Casas, you will know that 
His work evokes the fires in which this language of rights had to be hammered out in the course of the, the brutal treatment of indigenous peoples, um, their, their taking away of their land, the taking away of their lives, um, the, the torture that was inflicted against them. Las Casas was adamant that, you know, for our age of disinformation and fake news and so forth, Las Casas faced a similar problem that he needed to go before the Spanish crown to make a historical record of what really was happening. And his, Las Casas is really, I think, at, in terms of his genre, a historian. And it's really in the course of his historical writings that we do see, though, this early idea of rights that's elaborated, but it's forged in the crucible of those rights being taken away. And when we come to Locke, we'll see that there's actually a similarity here in the sense that Locke was also responding to religious violence in his own context, as after the Reformation, you had certain countries swapping monarchs, and this is most evident in England, between Catholics and Protestants and killing one another on account of that. It's interesting that the idea of rights as we have it today, both in Latin America and in the Anglo-American tradition, really grew out of contexts paradoxically where those rights were taken away. Um, just a brief note about what my methodology is. I, I gather that's an important thing uh, for the study of ethics, and I, I am following what I see as the methodology that Charles Taylor adopts in a lot of his work. Taylor, who's a political philosopher at McGill, and he speaks of studying our current social practices through looking at the genealogy of our ideas. So Taylor's point is that when we come to an idea, I would say, like human rights, we find it can be so familiar that it's hard to actually see it clearly or examine it or analyze it or criticize it without getting some critical distance. And so Taylor calls us to look back at the history of our ideas to see where they came from and to sort of go back to where they first emerge and at those early points to not be snob snobberish, snobbish about them being so old and we now know better, but actually to use that history to help us see, you know, we haven't always thought the way we do now. And maybe there are things from the past that bear revivifying and bringing back to present day use. And so that is how I'm presenting Las Casas in particular in the course of this presentation is asking whether there are elements that we've lost from Las Casas in the course of the development of human rights, which I do think traces its way through Locke to us. Um, I think maybe there are elements from Las Casas that we could, we could benefit from. And so that is basically the, the scope of my project. I'm comparing Locke and Las Casas, but really using Locke to draw out the distinctives of Las Casas and to ask what he has for us today. Um, before we dive into what I've called a dialogue between Locke and Las Casas, uh, which won't be as extensive, I wish we could bring them here and have them debate a whole number of topics, so, but um, I'd like to just point out why Locke and Las Casas are just an interesting pair besides the fact that they both talk about human rights at an early time. Uh, one thing you'll notice when you read either of them is the surprising amount of religious language that appears in their texts. Uh, this in part was just the norm in this time period. It was very much, a, especially in Europe, a religiously saturated culture. Um, and you may know if you've studied Locke a bit, there's actually a lot of debate on whether Locke's religion was genuine. We know it seems he had a Puritan upbringing, but there are a number of people who now question whether Locke's theory can stand on his arguments from reason alone. If you know, he often argues for things in terms of reason and revelation, you know, trying to say that Whatever he's arguing really is supported by both of those things, but a number of scholars today have suggested maybe he was just playing up the revelation side to not get in as much trouble as Hobbes got into, who came across much more clearly as, as, a, as an atheist, even though Hobbes himself denied that. And so perhaps here Locke is just playing the religion card to not lose a following. 
with Las Casas, it's harder to say that. <laughs> this is someone who very much exhibited a passion to see indigenous peoples come to know uh, the truth of the Christian faith. And on account of that, uh, as some of you read for this course, Las Casas has fallen under criticism as well as Locke in terms of their role embedded in these colonial imperial systems. Um, we see this very clearly with Locke. This is something that authors like Barbara Arneal have been talking about where he served on what was called the English Board of Trade. It was a, a government institution very much involved with regulating things like the slave trade. Uh, Locke also helped uh, write the constitutions for the colonies of the Carolinas, uh, constitutions which enshrined a certain right to slavery. Um, and so there's been a lot of what, what's been called a Janus-faced reception of Locke in the sense that some people still like his ideas of equality and so forth enshrined in documents mm -hmm. like the U.S. Constitution, but there's also this appreciation now that, that he was embedded within a colonial project um, that, that has tarnished uh, the things that he wrote, and we need to read him in that light. And Las Casas has seen similarly. Um, you know, in, in some sense, as I've mentioned, he's celebrated as a forerunner of the idea of human rights in Latin America, but on the other hand, he is seen as being within this larger Spanish imperial project. And uh, one of the articles I think you read was focused on how Las Casas seems to perhaps have introduced the idea of race. And this maybe he did inadvertently by wanting to emphasize the humanity of indigenous peoples, but doing that in such a way that emphasized that they're different from us, but yet they're still human. And so Bonvacano from Duke in that article argues that one thing that Las Casas did that was perhaps unintentional, he calls Las Casas a racialist and not a racist, is that by putting indigenous peoples in a separate category, he actually kind of created this category in our minds of human but different that ended up being um, a forerunner of the idea of race, which was um, problematically misused against people like indigenous peoples and other minorities in the, in the history of, of Western European thought. Um, but Las Casas has also been pointed out, as we mentioned with his zeal for evangelism, as simply um, what uh, another scholar of Las Casas called Dan named Daniel Castro calls an, an, a benevolent face of Spanish imperialism, which is this sense that just what the Spanish were doing, taking away lands, though Las Casas was critical of that, he in a sense was doing spiritually. He was trying to impose what he felt was the absolute objective truth regarding God and the Christian faith and impose that on other people. And so in that sense, Las Casas is seen like Locke as part of these colonial projects, and that does help us um, situate them. But I'm going to point out in the course of my presentation, Las Casas' religious emphasis, in fact, leads us paradoxically in a tolerant direction. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and lastly here, I have on this handout that there is, there is a hint of a direct link between Locke and Las Casas. It seems that... Um, when they cataloged Locke's library, they found a copy of, I think, the book that you said that you read in your, your class, which I read, I think, in high school as well, A Brief History of the Destruction of the Indies. I've never seen Locke reference Las Casas explicitly, though I would love to find that. That would be like dissertation gold, if I could. <laughs> um, but I, I do very much think, yeah, that's right. I do very much think that um, Locke was familiar with Las Casas. In general, Las Casas was loved in England because the English loved reading how bad the Spanish had been. <laughs> and so Las Casas was known as the author of what's sometimes called the Leyenda Negra, the black legend of, of the awful things the Spanish were doing. And sometimes even today in scholarship, this is sort of seen negatively in the sense that maybe Las Casas and others were exaggerating the extent to which the Spanish were brutalizing Latin America. 
I, in general, think that, that that's not the, the direction we should take with this, though perhaps there are certain exaggerations of figures and that kind of thing in Las Casas' writings. So I do think Locke was familiar with Las Casas. Um, Locke, there's debate on where Locke really gets his ideas from. Some argue he really gets them from Hobbes, and, and that's really the new thing that happened in the Enlightenment is there's a break from the natural law tradition. But many others would say, actually, Locke is reading the, the Dutchman Hugo Grotius. Grotius was influenced by the scholastic tradition in Spain, what was known as the, you know, the Salamancan school with figures like Suarez and Vittoria. These were contemporaries of Las Casas and certainly were breathing the same air. So maybe there is a link that can be drawn. Um, at the very least, we know that these two figures were pivotal in their own traditions. And in some sense, Locke was aware of Las Casas. All right. Um, that's my introduction. The rest will be, will be a little more focused on these actual texts and I will not take my full 45 minutes. So, so do not worry if you need to run for more pizza or run because the snow is getting thicker. I, well, in a sense, what I'm gonna do in terms of this dialogue, it's gonna be very brief and very much risks eliding uh, details in these great thinkers' theories of rights, but I'm just gonna focus on what I see as two umbrella concepts that factor prominently in each of their theories of rights. Uh, so I'm beginning with Locke here. And what I'm going to argue is that the heart of Locke's theory of rights, which I do think is carried forward in the Anglo-American tradition, is this idea of property. Uh, when we hear that word, we tend to associate that with land or possessions. But it's good to recall that for Locke, this was a broader term, um, something that we get closer to with like the French word propre, in the sense that it's something that's your own. We have this in Spanish as well with propio. Um, you're something that is, of course, fully your own. And for Locke, this began very much at, in, at the level of the human person. If we knew that anything was our own, it certainly is ourselves. Um, and so we see in Locke very much a, a right to self, a right to, to bodily integrity, a right to life. Um, but what's famous, what Locke is famous for is how he translates that right to self to a right to property in the sense of land. And maybe when you read in your intro to political theory class, you read Locke, you remember his theory of property where he speaks of mixing in your labor with what God has created in common to make it your own. I see some nods in the room. You've been put through that experience of reading Locke's second, second treatise on government. So Locke, again, the religion comes in here, he would say all of Creation is given to us in common, but how exactly can you appropriate what is common to yourself? So he gives the example of a, of a man who wants to take up an acorn. I think he wants to eat the acorn, which I've always struck, struck me as a bit weird. I don't know, he could have chosen a more appetizing fruit, but on what grounds would Locke say he can eat the acorn it's, if it's given in common? Well, the act of picking it up, that's what makes the acorn your own. And so that is how we get this idea of property. And I'm just going to read this quote here on the handout um, where he explains how this works and in a sense what it means for lands that he would consider undeveloped, which will have implications when we think about colonialism and Locke. Locke says, he who appropriates land to himself by his labor does not lessen but increases the common stock of mankind. For the provisions serving to support excuse me, serving to the support of human life produced by one acre of enclosed and cultivated land are, to speak much within compass, 10 times more than those which are yielded by an acre of land of an equal richness lying waste in common. 
So Locke would say that when you work the land, not only does it become your own because it was given in common, but your work, your labor mixes in some of yourself with it and that makes it yours. It also is a good thing because it makes the land more productive. But you can see how read through the lens of colonialism, this can be used to justify basically seeing indigenous peoples as wasting their land and in fact, seeing them as less virtuous as settlers who would come in and develop the land in a more fruitful way. And so, here we see this idea of rights to land, which is appropriated by labor through this notion of property, which is central to Locke's thinking. But another realm that property touches, I'm going to argue, is in this area of beliefs and, and religious freedom. Um, and this uh, has been termed, um, well, I should first say that Locke has a way, he's always arguing reason and revelation here. So he has a way setting reason aside to justify how beliefs also should be protected. So he would say, just as your labor is your own, so also your convictions about the things most sacred to you, um, what certainly regarding the divine, regarding right and wrong to an extent, um, those views are yours. And so therefore property extends in terms of one's ownness, extends also to your beliefs. That's one way he sort of advocates for a right to religious freedom. But we also see here, he is a way of justifying this that uh, could be put in terms of revelation. And here I'm using this phrase called evangelical toleration. And if you have been around the Center for Ethics for a while, you will know, I was amazed to discover in 2015, there was an ethics at noonish presentation on this topic by the originator of this idea. Her name is Teresa Bejan. She was a postdoctoral fellow here at the time, and she now has a position at Oxford. Um, but she advocated this idea, and she was primarily looking at a thinker named Roger Williams, who was a a figure from about 100 years after Locke in, in the American colonies who was advocating for tolerance, but doing it in a very Christian way on the basis of evangelism. That's what the root word there um, that Bejan has in mind when she speaks of evangelist, evangelical toleration. In other words, it's a way of early modern toleration. It was quite common at the time. We will see it in Las Casas as well. That basically justifies itself on the grounds of effective evangelism. And we'll come to that at greater depth when we get to Las Casas and the paradoxes that are involved there. But notice here this, that this does show up even in Locke. So here's a, a line from his letter concerning toleration. Locke writes, the toleration of those that differ from others in matters of religion is so agreeable to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the genuine reason of mankind. So we've spoken about a bit of some of his arguments regarding reason, but he says that toleration is also agreeable to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here it seems that he means this Christian message, which would be at the heart of evangelism, the message that's to be shared that, as the book of Romans puts it, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that God meets us in our difference, but in a way that actually is a posture of goodness and grace towards us, that that idea really, if that is at the heart of what you believe, Christian, and these were generally Christians in Locke's day, then that should make you a tolerant person. So a basis for toleration on the grounds of what the core of the Christian message was. So in some, I would say property is a central idea for Locke, but we do see this notion of evangelical toleration sneaking its way in, although it's very much something that sort of comes alongside his other arguments that perhaps can stand on their own without invoking religion. But I turn now to the other side of the handout to think about Las Casas. Um, and what we do find in Las Casas is a, a kind of use of rights language that is in the modern subjectivized sense, which just means it's confusing to do this in Latin because the word use is usually used for right in 
in the early sense uh, of natural right, natural law, which is really more a kind of law embedded in the created order. But there's also a sense in which use is used, and we see this in Las Casas, de Unico, the, wor the work I'm focusing on here, was written in Latin. It is used in this subjectivized sense, just in the sense that it's tied to subjects, to individuals. And that is the modern way that we tend to use the word right. And I have here this list of three levels of goods, which sort of are the, the hierarchy on which Las Casas hangs his theory of rights. Though again, he doesn't use this word right consistently and always in the same way. I am very much arguing that this is an early, less systematic form of rights. And yet Las Casas argues that all human beings, they, they have possessions. And very much he saw land as a possessions that indigenous people held. And Las Casas saw that actually that land was something they had a right to. Las Casas is just here inheriting this view from Cicero and the Stoics that land was sort of yours by long occupation. So actually Las Casas very much was a defender of the lands of indigenous peoples. This was complicated because Alexander VI, the Pope had given Spain what was called the papal donation of the new world. In the sense he gave them the new world for their, well, this is the question, for what? For, for Las Casas, he said it was a spiritual donation in a sense that the Spanish only had the rights to present the, mes the message of the Christian faith in a peaceful way. But of course, the main way the crown took it, and certainly the conquistadors on the ground, was that this was actually a land donation that was done by the Pope. But Las Casas didn't see it that way. And actually, towards the end of his life, when some people feel he was getting just jaded with, with how his efforts had produced so little fruit, he actually argues in one of his final works that um, that really the only proper response of the Spanish at the stage was to give all of the land back, which would be powerful, I think, for us to pick up and engage with in our conversations about indigenous relations in, in Canada as well. Las Casas seemed at his time to feel that maybe that was an option that at least needed to be heard out. So Las Casas has a robust sense of, of, of rights to land, but also he has certainly a high regard for rights of the body. This would include right to life as well as right to... Um, right to bodily integrity. And um, if you get the sense, if you read his historical works, you'll just realize he just feels the need to record all the episodes he can get his hands on of how indigenous peoples were mistreated bodily. And this really, it makes his work very painful to read, but you really see that this is a theory of human rights, I'm gonna argue at the very end, that really is centered around suffering. And uh, a year ago here at the Center for Ethics, there was a, a series of talks on Hannah Arendt and this was a theme in her theory of rights as well. Very much Las Casas's focus, you can tell his heart is drawn to cases where he sees the body and life taken away. He feels the need to write it all down for perpetual record. But finally, I have here, and the reason I start with this is because at the top of this hierarchy for Las Casas is the soul. And when you read a book like De Unico, you see that what he's most concerned about, at least in his own words, though he's drawn to suffering, he's most concerned with what he might call eternal suffering. In other words, he's a concerned that because like the, the mistreatment of indigenous peoples, the taking of their land, the terrible treatment of their bodies and lives, in a sense, is particularly awful because it clouded the way they saw the Christian faith, clouded the way they heard the Christian message. And in a sense, when they were killed without the chance of even hearing it, that was essentially commending their souls to what he felt was hell on account of them never having had the chance to hear the Christian faith. And this really was a chief concern for him. And I argue paradoxically that this kind of drove his theory of rights. So look at the title of this work that, that I'm focusing on. This is a book, a work with this Latin title, uh, De Unico Vocationis Modo Omnium Gentium Adveram Religionum, with the very uh, modest English translation of on the only way to draw all people to the, Christ the true faith. Um, and so what this work is, in a sense, is a work of evangelism. It's about practice of how the Christian faith 
should be shared. And by way of context, it's helpful to know that Las Casas was responding to those like his famous dialogue partner, Sepulveda, who he had this big dialogue with in the 1550s about the humanity of indigenous peoples. There was a lot of disagreement on could indigenous peoples be subjugated not to be forced to be converted, even at that time, that idea was not really put forward by many people, but could they be sort of restricted in their you know, movements to one place? Could they be subdued in order to be calm enough to hear the Christian message? And Las Casas argued emphatically, no. The, the primary tool that this was being done through was what was called the encomienda system, which was a way that Spaniards in the New World were given a few indigenous slaves to work a plot of land, but this was ostensibly done for the purpose of evangelism, because you as the landlord would be able to have your slaves there with you every day, you'd be able to share your faith with them. This is the, the primary instrument of colonialism that Las Casas was most vehemently against. And he argues this in very Christian terms. Um, and I'll just read for you uh, just the opening words to, to this work, just so you see basically how it is attractive evangelism, and yet that... Um, that uh, ends up having implications for, for rights. One way, one way only of teaching a living faith to everyone, everywhere, always, was set by divine providence. The way that wins the mind with reasons, that wins the will with gentleness, with invitation. It has to fit all people on earth, no distinction made for sect, for error, even for evil. And he goes on to say that this way of gentleness in sharing the Christian faith finds its history in the practice of the patriarchs, in the preaching of Christ, and in the practice of the apostles and church doctors. So Las Casas here, I'm arguing, has a sort of a two-stage argument. First, he wants to say there is just one category for humanity um, in the, the biblical perspective, and, and so therefore it's not appropriate to, to see these as lesser people in any way. And second, um, this one category for humanity that's invoked in evangelism passages in the Bible also is very explicit about a certain way that evangelism is to be done, the modo of evangelism. It's to be gentle and, and invitational using reason instead of violence. And basically what I suggest here is that what we find is not just evangelical toleration, as Bejan argues, but even what I'm going to call an evangelical theory to rights in general. Because what I'm suggesting is that in Las Casas, there's kind of an arch right that's the most important right of all others. And it's odd to, to call it this because we don't see this as the arch right today necessarily. But for Las Casas, the arch right that every human being has is the right to certain conditions under which you can genuinely hear and respond to the Christian message. So he refers, for instance, to pupils and students. And he says a student can't learn unless they have leisure and quiet. And so he argues if someone is going to learn about the Christian faith, they need to be free of emotional upset, born of fear, depression, sorrow, fury, outrage, despair, and humiliation. In other words, the, the wrongness of the dispossession of possessions and violence against the body for Las Casas is intensified. It is wrong in itself, but it is intensified because the conditions in which those rights are being taken away is one in which you would be so distracted that you could never be open to actually considering the Christian faith for yourself. And the terrible example of the Spanish would lead you to feel, as many indigenous peoples did, that basically, why would you ever want to worship this God if this is what this kind of God stands for? 
And so what I argue is that there is a paradox here, that here you have a right to religious freedom, and I'm actually going to argue a right to, to more than just religious freedom, but it's based on a very narrow religious doctrine. And I think maybe someone who draws this out very clearly of how this is an issue for us today is someone like Isaiah Berlin, another great political theory 101 author that we tend to read. Isaiah Berlin really takes aim at monism as the great enemy of modern liberal thought, this conception that there is one system of beliefs that is absolutely true. For Berlin, if you have such a conception of, of political ideas, that's only going to lead you necessarily into imposing those beliefs on others. And yet here in Las Casas, paradoxically, we find not only a monistic view of religion, um, but if we took the most narrow and monistic part of that religion, the doctrine of evangelism, that for Las Casas paradoxically has become the very ground for toleration. I need to tolerate you in the hopes that one day you'll be able to hear the Christian message and receive it for yourself. And that's going to dictate the way that I should treat you. And it's going to dictate the way I treat you, not just in that I shouldn't force my beliefs onto you. But I argue here under this potential contribution section, there is even space here what, for what are often called positive rights. So whereas for Locke, we see very much rights are in the sense of being free from government intervention for Las Casas. If what's required for hearing the Christian faith is not just absence of violence, but also presence of education, presence of welfare, presence of a good example from Christian uh, people around you, then that actually, in a way, moves us to what is seen as a more modern, more contemporary understanding of rights, where we speak about rights to education and so forth, ideas which are really not present in, in Locke at all, but weirdly, through the lens of evangelism, have kind of a place in Las Casas' thinking. So I argue that is something neat and worthwhile to bring forward from Las Casas today, or at least to acknowledge that we already have this in practice and to appreciate that, that it has actually some history to it in the history of human rights. But I also have a few other points here that I think Las Casas offers that, that are interesting and helpful. One is this notion of a hierarchy of rights. Um, in the Lockean tradition, property is property and rights are rights. You don't really get a sense that rights to land are more important than rights to life, though perhaps there is sort of a de facto, everyone should know it's common sense that perhaps some rights are superior to others. But isn't it the case that in a lot of human rights discourse today, we have contesting rights claims? Um, and I have here in mind an example like gun control, where you very much have people affirming rights on the basis of the Second Amendment, which I would say for Las Casas are in the category of rights of possession, that perhaps there's more to it that could be argued for. Um, whereas on the other side of that issue, you have people arguing what I would say for more rights of life issues, that there's a sense in which your rights to possessions are rights. But here Las Casas gives us a framework to say, yes, but certain rights are subordinate to others, and perhaps a right to life um, you know, is the clearer and trumping right in this case. I think that could be helpful for our confusing human rights discourse today. Um, thirdly, I think that Las Casas does offer a helpful framework for addressing complicity with rights that are violated. So along with these three categories of goods, he also gives this helpful framework for designating perpetrators, designating enablers, designating those who are complicit, those who are complicit out of ignorance, and finds a way to allocate different degrees of responsibility and consequences to be distributed along those lines. And so he very much applied this at the level of what the Spanish crown was doing in the new world. And in a sense, their claims to be removed from the worst of the conquistadors, but he was using this framework to actually draw out degrees of complicity that needed to be taken seriously. So I think of issues in our contemporary scene like today, where you have 
you know, conversations about white privilege and that kind of thing, which are sometimes met with a knee-jerk response to say, well, I, I am not the, the worst kind of perpetrator that there have been in the history of Western civilization. And so I'm, I'm exempt from, from accounts of responsibility on account of that. I think that Las Casas can help us see actually, it gives us the framework to not to give up on that kind of an argument, but to actually bring nuance and say, that is not an excuse for not taking these claims seriously as they're made. And finally, I think there is a centrality of suffering in Las Casas's theory of rights, beginning with the most vulnerable, that I do feel also can be helpful to bring clarity and priority to our contrasting human rights claims of, of you know, deserving certain kinds of treatment. Las Casas puts at the center of his theory the suffering of those whose, whose suffering often went unvoiced. I think that's helpful to carry forward. But just as we close, um, maybe I'll just spend five minutes on this final section of what maybe is one of the burning questions of you in the room, and I'm eager for all of your thoughts on this presentation, but I'm curious how you take all this religion involved in these theory of rights, and particularly in, in Las Casas. Um, there's a way, if you've studied, uh, especially reception of Locke, you'll know that Leo Strauss and, and others, even figures like Richard Tuck, have argued that Locke, in a way, necessarily must be a break from the medieval tradition because they argue rights and toleration, these are essentially enlightenment ideas. We had to step away from um, conceptions of absolute truth, of religion and so forth, in order to be able to get to the place where we could advocate for, uh, for a genuine kind of toleration. And I think Rousseau puts this in, in terms that, uh, and this is Teresa Bejan who points to Rousseau for, for I think the, what encapsulates this idea. Rousseau writes in the social contract, it is impossible to live in peace with people that one believes to be damned. And I think that this, this in a way, I, I think can help us read Locke and, and maybe discredit the faith elements if we follow Rousseau's line of reasoning. But it is much more difficult to apply this to Las Casas. <laughs> it's, it's hard to, to place a line of argument on him that says, really, he was a closet atheist. And um, all these treatises on evangelism were just, uh, again, ways to please people when he really had a subversive agenda, that agenda was toleration. Though interestingly, there are people who have tried to make this argument about Las Casas. Uh, there is a well-known um, French-Bulgarian uh, author named Svetan Todorov, who did write a book on Las Casas, who essentially argues that the, the openness Las Casas has, particularly at the end of his life, um, has to be a reflection of him leaving behind his narrow religious beliefs from his earlier days. But Todorov cannot point to anything in Las Casas that actually shows this shift taking place. It's just an assumption that he makes. But I think what, what I suggest and what I think weirdly enough, Nietzsche even suggests is that this element, this religious element of Las Casas is something that maybe we, we cannot simply discredit on the grounds that it's impossibly incompatible with toleration. For Las Casas, as we've seen, at least in his own mind, toleration springs out of religious conviction. It's out of this monistic conviction of the truth of the Christian faith and the way that that's supposed to be spread, that this ethic of what maybe Isaiah Berlin would be, be forced to admit is an early form of natural free or um, negative liberty. It's negative liberty finds its origins in a monistic source. And I mentioned Nietzsche because I, I do think Nietzsche was often talking in the genealogy of morals about what he felt was this slave morality that was the hangover of the Judeo-Christian tradition that enshrined ideas that we should care for the vulnerable and the weak and have our societies oriented around them. I think if Nietzsche saw the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, he would be 
very troubled and see it as a document that stifled the will to power of those individuals who were strong enough to break free from, from the captivity of this Judeo-Christian tradition. And so I, I end with that because I, I do think um, Nietzsche maybe helps us be more honest with what we would perhaps not want to see or not expect to see in terms of the religious origins of some of these ideas. But I think it also helps us see that even if we find a, a religious history to them, that doesn't mean that they are no longer meaningful or useful for human rights discourse and practice today. And I just argue that one of the, the outcomes I found in Las Casas is he's made me face that reality um, more directly than I had before. So thanks so much for your attention. And, um... Thank you so much.